0: Our Father in Heaven, we come to you today as we do each Sunday morning at this time. And we acknowledge our need for you. We know that we're fallen sinners and that in and of ourselves, we can't do anything spiritually good in this time. So God, now as we open your word and we look to the Bible, we pray that you would come by your Holy Spirit and that you would be with us. We pray that you would fill me as the preacher of your word with your spirit so that I might be helpful to these dear people. And we pray for all of us that we would be given ears to hear and eyes to see the truth that's contained in your word. Lord, we do thank you for your son, for his life, his death, his resurrection in the place of sinners. We pray that he would be exalted during this time as we look to your word. We pray that you would strengthen our faith in him. We pray that you would get glory for yourself, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, I would never tell a young aspiring preacher to try to do too many things in an introduction. It's like, brother, listen, what you need to do is pick one thing that you're trying to do and do it well. Try to draw people into a conversation that you want to have with them, but don't try to do too much. Don't certainly try to do a couple of things in an introduction, but I'm going to do that now. I'm going to break my own rule, and I'm going to try to do a couple of things in this introduction as we make our way back to the letter uh, to the Galatians this morning. I've been out of the pulpit a couple of weeks, and so I'm at the moment going to try to reorient us to where we have been, just give you a feel for the lay of the land as far as the letter to the Galatians. But I want to start by reminding us of the fact that God's truth never changes. We have gathered this morning to worship God. Our unchanging God. And we're going to be thinking today about God's good news, the gospel, and how it does not change, and how it doesn't change across time, but it doesn't even change across cultures or people groups. And I'm mindful as we come back to this letter, I'm, I'm mindful of the offense of the gospel. I was on a phone call with some pastors this week. And one of the guys on the call was um, the man who mentored me in the faith. And uh, we were talking about our churches and just how things are going, brother, how's how's life, how's your family, what are you preaching, things like that. And I told the guys on the call that I'm preaching through the letter of Galatians. And my uh, sort of mentor, friend, pastor is like, ah, Galatians, the book in the New Testament with the sharpest elbows. And I said... That's a decent description because Galatians is a ferocious defense of the gospel. The sharp elbows exist in order to defend the truth of the gospel. And so I trust that as we make our way through this letter, all of us are being ruffled up and so all of us are bristling a little bit at some of the things that Paul writes in defending the gospel of Justification, being reconciled to God completely by faith in Jesus Christ apart from anything that you do or I do. And so I look forward to getting back into this text today. And I, I just want to say at the outset that it is never my aim to offend any one person. I don't have particular people in view when I'm coming to preach particular pieces of the text. I do prepare sermons with you in mind, but this is nothing personal. And I I trust that all of us as we're confronted with the truth of the word of God, we wrestle with it and we look at the book and we say, all right, I'm going to take seriously everything that the Lord has said there. And so now today we make our way back to Paul's letter to the Galatians. We have spent four sermons making our way through Galatians chapter one, and we find ourselves today in the beginning of Galatians chapter two. And just to reorient you as to where we've been, you remember in verses 6 through 9, after Paul has written his introduction to the letter, that he makes the statement that he is astonished at how quickly the Galatian Christians are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, he says, but you have turned to a different gospel. And we thought about every week what that different gospel is. It's not that false teachers in the Galatian churches were preaching justification by works. It's not that they were preaching salvation by keeping the law or salvation by circumcision or any of those things. But they were preaching that one had to have works of the law. Someone had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Faith plus Jesus plus, right? We've been thinking about that each week. And so Paul, it's clear that his gospel and his authority are under attack. In these churches throughout Galatia. And see, so he goes about defending the gospel, but before he even does that very specifically, he's going to do a lot of that work in chapters 3, 4, etc. He is beginning a defense in chapter 1 and verse 10 of his own ministry, of his own authority. And so he talks in verse 10 to the fact that he's being accused of preaching a gospel. That would just please his audience. Paul, you are adjusting the gospel you're preaching to these Gentile Christians. You're telling them they don't need to be circumcised. You're telling them they don't need to live like Jews because you fear people. And he refutes that in verse 10. He's then being accused, it seems, in verses 11 and following, of preaching a gospel that is a human gospel. It's a man-made gospel. To which he responds, no, I'm not preaching man's gospel. I'm preaching this gospel because it was revealed to me by the Lord Jesus Christ. God revealed the gospel to me. And there's only one reason that I would ever leave behind Judaism where I was crushing it and I was elite. I was advancing beyond many of my own age. I was a rock star in that world. The only reason I would leave that personally is because I have been shown by God that the gospel doesn't include keeping the law, and it doesn't include circumcision. And as far as preaching that gospel and it being popular, that message of the cross of Jesus Christ is foolishness to Gentiles, and it's a stumbling block for Jews. Why would he ever do that if it was for popularity, if it was for some earthbound reason? He makes that argument. He demonstrates that he received this gospel from God independent of any man. He didn't even consult, he says, with the apostles in Jerusalem. You see that in verses 16, 17 and following. He didn't go up to Jerusalem to make sure that what he was preaching was right because he knew that he had been shown this gospel by the Lord himself. And then he mentions in verses 18 through 24 how he briefly went up to Jerusalem after several years of preaching the gospel. He had brief interaction with Peter and also James, the Lord's brother. But you see in verse 22, he was still unknown in person to the churches that are in Judea. He has not been influenced by a human being, is what he's saying. They were only hearing, that means the Judean Christians were only hearing it said of me, verse 23 of chapter 1. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. The reason he left all that behind is because God did it. God called him to this ministry. And now he's preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And today he's going to take up this final accusation. If you want to keep three accusations in mind, the first being, Paul, you're preaching a gospel to please people. Second accusation being made by his opponents is, Paul, you're preaching a man-made gospel, bro. You're not preaching God's gospel. You're preaching a man-made, human-constructed gospel. Third accusation is that you're preaching a gospel that is out of step with the Jerusalem apostles. You're preaching a gospel that is not going to jive With what the brothers in Jerusalem are preaching. To these opponents of Paul are trying to undermine his ministry. So Paul today in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 is going to respond to that accusation. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I appreciate you sticking with me through a long introduction. We're going to now look to God's word. I'm going to read it for us before we go any further. We're going to look today at Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. This is the word of God. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So my plan for us today, friends, is, is relatively simple. I want to consider first the circumstance, this trip to Jerusalem in particular that Paul takes. I want to orient us in the life of Paul and his ministry a little bit, just so that we're grounded there. And we can wrap our minds around that briefly. That will not take long. And then I want to consider Paul's point, And then finally, Paul's concerns. I'm going to kind of draw those things out for you again As we make our way through the text. So let's consider first the circumstance that he's writing about. So if you look in chapter 2 and verse 1 where he says, after 14 years, I understand those 14 years to be talking about 14 years from his conversion, from the experience that he had on the Damascus Road where he encountered the Lord Jesus. So three years after his conversion, you see chapter 1 and verse 18, he went up to Jerusalem and then... 11 years after that, or 14 total years after his conversion, he goes back to Jerusalem again, taking Barnabas and Titus along with him. I understand this visit, so there is some dispute, and I don't want to spend a lot of time in this, but I want you to be informed. There's dispute about whether chapter 2, 1 through 10, is talking about the Jerusalem council of Acts chapter 15, or whether it's talking about an earlier visit to Jerusalem. It's my, as I've studied the text and I've read Acts and I've read Galatians and looking at Paul's arguments and flows of thought, it is my conclusion that this trip to Jerusalem is not the Jerusalem Council. But it is, in fact, an earlier trip that he made in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, and also mentioned in Acts chapter 12. And the reason I think that, I just want you guys to, to understand where we are. Uh, The reason that I think that is that he says, Paul does, you see in chapter 2 and verse 2 of Galatians, that he went up to Jerusalem because of a revelation. Well, in Acts chapter 11 and verse 27, there is a prophecy by a man named Agabus that is the reason why Paul and Barnabas end up making that trip to Jerusalem. So when Paul says, I went because of revelation, it seems reasonable to me that we could be talking about the prophecy by this man named Agabus in Acts chapter 11 that sent Paul to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. But then Paul will talk in chapter 2 and verse 2 of Galatians about presenting his gospel privately to the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And he says that I set before them, though, privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel. This just does not sound at all like the very public forum, the kind of public thing that would have been taking place at that Jerusalem council, where apostles had been summoned to try to make a big decision about implications of the gospel for Gentiles. So also, Paul, I think, as we understand this in the flow of his missionary journeys, et cetera, I think we would understand that these Galatian churches were planted by him in Acts chapter 13 and 14 on his first missionary journey. And so I'm saying that I think Paul would have written this letter to the Galatians probably within a year or so of planting the churches, and he would have written it shortly before the Jerusalem Council happened. Now, the main reason that I think that this is not the Jerusalem Council is because Paul is contending for the fact that Gentiles do not need to be circumcised in order to be followers of the Lord Jesus. Well, the Jerusalem Council authoritatively made that call. When the apostles were summoned together, they settled these issues that Gentiles don't need to live like Jews. That Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. In order to be right with God. And Paul never makes an appeal. In the entire letter of Galatians. To that reality. It, It seems to me. That if he is trying to defend his gospel. And defend this justification by faith. Apart from works. Apart from circumcision. It's like hey. This has been decided guys. By the apostles in Jerusalem. He never does that. He's making other arguments. So I think that's reason to conclude. That the Jerusalem Council happens after Paul has written this letter. Now that's kind of like the seminary class portion of this sermon. And I hope that you're not all bored out of your minds. I think this stuff matters. So that when you read your Bibles. You can think God works in history. Right? He works in time and space. And so it's good for us to be able to orient ourselves around what's happening. So Paul is making this journey to Jerusalem with Barnabas. He's bringing Titus, a Greek, along with him. And he is going because of revelation that once he gets there, he's going to present his gospel to the leaders of the Jerusalem church. So that brings me now to the second piece of the sermon where I want us to consider together Paul's point. Paul's point. What's he saying in chapter 2 verses 1 to 10? How is he responding to the accusations that have been made against him? Remember, he's being accused of preaching a gospel that doesn't jive with what the dudes in Jerusalem are preaching. So he tells us, chapter 2 and verse 2, that he went up because of a revelation, we've already considered that, and then set before them, privately those who seemed influential in the church of Jerusalem, the gospel that he proclaimed among the Gentiles. He says he wants to make sure that he was not running or had not run in vain. What he means, I think, there is, he's asking, is my work, is my preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles, the way that I'm doing it, not only is it right, but is it creating division in the church? Is it creating this unhealthy separation between Jew and Gentile? Am I working in vain or am I on the right track, brothers? That's the question he's asking. And the answer, as we see in the passage, is very clearly no. You see in verse 3 that Titus was not required. Titus is a believer not required to be circumcised. When he comes to Jerusalem, to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, to these Judean Jewish Christians, Titus is not required to be circumcised. Then we see in verse 6, pivotal words there. Paul says, and from those who seem to be influential, he says, those, I say, who seem to be influential added nothing to me. What does he mean by that? He means very simply not that they didn't add anything to his person, but that they did not add anything to his gospel. They did not add anything to his message. They weren't saying, Paul, yeah, you're preaching the right thing at the core, but here are these other things you need to put on top of it. They added nothing, he says, to me. Then in verse 9, we finally read that the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, James, Peter, John, they perceived that the grace of God had been put upon Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and they extend... The right hand of fellowship to him. Meaning, we are on the same team, brother. We are of the same accord. We are in agreement about the gospel and about how people are saved through the Lord Jesus. And then finally you see in verse 10, he mentions this. He says, only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do that could also be rendered which I had made or was making every effort to do. So Paul's saying, they added nothing to my gospel. They encouraged us to remember the poor, which I was eager to do. I'm very eager to do. And we know that from Paul's letters, that he was often involved. Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He was often involved in raising money for saints who were suffering in various places. And he himself also profited from money that was accumulated and collected and sent. He mentions all of those things throughout his letter. So we know that Paul was mindful of caring for the poor. So he's saying, look, the the guys in Jerusalem, they agree with me and I agree with them. We are preaching the same gospel. So he's refuting that charge that his opponents are making. That he and the guys in Jerusalem don't agree. It's not true. Now in verses 11 and following... In chapter 2, we're going to next week be considering verses 11 through 14 where there's a confrontation with Peter that's going to be quite interesting. So come back for that next week. But then after those few verses is where Paul's going to launch into very explicit and clear defenses of his gospel. But what I want to do now for the rest of our time together is I want to look at verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 and draw out from it some of the things that seem to be concerns for the Apostle Paul. Paul's concerns as he thinks about the gospel and even the gospel as it pertains to the guys in Jerusalem preaching to Jews and the gospel as it pertains to him preaching to Gentiles primarily. So now we have made it friends to Paul's concerns. Concern number one for the Apostle Paul is that there is one gospel. There is one gospel capital O-N-E one gospel. Paul is quite clear in this letter and elsewhere in his writings. The New Testament is quite clear, and I would argue that the witness of the entire Bible is quite clear, that Jew and Gentile are reconciled to God the same way. Jew and Gentile are reconciled to God the same way. Jews are not saved by their Jewishness. We know that from Scripture. Not all Israel is Israel. There are children of promise, and there are children of the flesh. And so we have to keep that straight that Jewishness never saved a single person. Jews, ethnic Jews, are saved by believing the promises of God. Let's start with Father Abraham, right? How is he reconciled to the Lord? Let's remember, as has been mentioned a number of times in recent weeks, even from the prophet Haggai, as Brandon's been preaching there, that Abram, before he was called by God, was not a righteous man, he was a pagan worshiping other gods with his fathers in the Ur of the Chaldeans, right? We know that from Joshua chapter 24. And then God calls him, tells him that I'm going to make out of you a great people, I'm going to bless you in these ways, and I'm going to bless the nations. I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to bless the nations through you. So in that first big promise of God, we see that God's perspective and God's scope in terms of his plan of redemption has always been global. And then we learn how Abraham is reconciled to God. We learn that explicitly in the book of Genesis in two different places. We are told that Abraham believed God when God made these promises to him. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And the Apostle Paul is going to draw on that not only in this letter but also in his letter to the Romans. So this truth is essential. God never changes, right? The way God saves never changes. There are different eras of redemptive history. There is something called the Old Covenant and the New Covenant that's true. And people have always been saved by believing the promises of God. And so then we think about Gentiles, though. Gentiles, because of this one gospel, it's not necessary that the Gentiles would live like Jews, It's not necessary that they would keep the Jewish law. It's not necessary that they would keep the feasts and the ceremonies and even be circumcised. That's not what's required in order for them to be saved. They, too, are saved by trusting the promises of God in Christ. So there is this one gospel. We see that Peter, along with James and John and others, is preaching this one gospel primarily to the Jews. We see that in verses 7 through 9. Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. Though famously, Peter preaches the gospel to Gentiles in Acts 10 and 11. So it's not exclusive. It's not like, well, Peter, you can't ever preach to a Gentile. And Paul, you can't ever preach to a Jew. Because Paul was reasoning in the synagogues all the time. That's not the point. But the point being, this one gospel entrusted to various men, preached to all kinds of people, is the only gospel that saves. There is no other way. There's no other plan of salvation except through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And so, we now move on to concern number two of the Apostle Paul. The first concern is that there is one gospel. His second concern is about the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel. If you put your eyes on verses 4 and 5, you're going to see that this whole dispute over circumcision, dispute over law keeping in general has arisen because of people that Paul calls false brothers in verse four. These are false brothers, false professors who have slipped in, kind of infiltrated the church, right? And they're requiring something of people beyond Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that they've slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Slavery to what? The law. Slavery to practices, traditions of the fathers. But then we read on in verse 5. Paul says that they did not, and meaning he's saying we, apostles, people with him. He said we did not yield to them in submission even for a moment. Why? So that purpose, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So Paul's concern in all of this, in all this talk of circumcision, in all of this talk of traditions, in all of this talk of law keeping, is the truth of the gospel. And that it would be preserved, that it would be protected for people, for all people. In particular, he's writing to Christians in Galatia. I did this, we Did this, we didn't submit for a second because we love you and we want the truth of the gospel preserved for you. Paul understands clearly that to have yielded to these people and by that, what would we mean? Well, we're just going to start circumcising people. We're going to start keeping traditions. We're going to start keeping the law again in order to please these false brothers. He understands that yielding to them and doing that even for a moment, would obscure the truth of the gospel. It would make it, at best, less clear. At worst, it could be lost altogether, right? And so remember, remember the distortion that's taken place even in these churches in Galatia, right? It's, you're saved by faith in Christ and circumcision. You're saved by faith in Christ and keeping tradition. You're saved by faith in Christ and keeping the law. He's digging underneath that. And he's exposing the error that's there. He's concerned to protect the gospel. The gospel is not Jesus plus. The gospel is not faith in Christ plus works. It's not faith in Christ plus obedience. The gospel is this. The gospel is a person hearing the message of Jesus. His perfect life. His atoning death. His triumphant resurrection, the promises that are made and held out, turning from my sin, turning from my good deeds, even, and trusting completely in Christ for my salvation. The gospel is agreeing with God God, you're right. You're right, I'm a sinner. I'm ruined before you. God, I have fallen so short. You're right. I've trampled your glory every day. And then the gospel is realizing and seeing and hearing and rejoicing over the fact that Jesus has done what I could never do. That perfect righteousness that God requires. Jesus has accomplished it completely. It's done. The perfect life has been lived. Jesus has earned my righteousness. That's gospel. Jesus also has paid for my sins. There's a penalty due to me for the sins I've committed. There is wrath from God that I deserve because he's good and because he hates sin, because he hates evil. I deserve that. And Jesus, he took that for me. That's gospel. God is righteous. He is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Jesus has made atonement for me. He is my righteousness. He paid my debt. He took my wrath. And I trust in Him. That's gospel. He has accomplished my salvation. And it's over. That's gospel. Does that. My question to you is. Does that sound like good news to anybody? Amen somebody. right? Because I trust that. Many of us, I trust we're honest, all of us, have come in here this morning struggling with sin. This week, this morning, I I trust that if any of us are honest, we come in here and we're we're gripped by the fact that I could have done so much more this week. This week, even forget my whole life, this week, I could have done so much more. In service to God. In love to others. In service to the church. I could have done so much more. The the word, the gospel says to that. Take heart, brother. Take heart, sister. Because Christ has accomplished your salvation. And when you hear that. When you hear that. Like let someone say. Someone may say. Well, brother, what about nominalism? What about lawlessness? You keep. Comforting people in their sin. You're just going to produce a bunch of lawless people who don't give a crap about righteousness. To which I say, no way. When a Christian hears that, when a believer hears this good news, the reaction is never great. I get a free pass. I'm going to go out and live like hell today. No. When a Christian hears that, you say, thank God for Jesus Christ, and I love God, and I am grateful to God, and I want to honor Him. I want to do better next week, and I trust that even in striving to do better, I will fail. And when I fail, that's when I need to be pointed to Christ, because He's the only ground of my assurance. That's gospel, and that's how these things work together. So when somebody says, brother, what about lawlessness? What about antinomianism? Those are real concerns, are they not? To which I would say, yes, they are. They are real concerns. I'm concerned for that. But brother and sister, mark it down. I promise you, you do not change the hearts of men with law. You change the hearts of men with gospel. That's it. You combat lawlessness with gospel. And so that's why we preach Christ crucified for sinners. We preach Christ and his merits applied to believers by the Holy Spirit through faith alone. And then what we do is we talk biblically about the relationship between saving faith and good works. We talk biblically about the relationship between saving faith and obedience. Where we make it really clear that it matters very much how we live. But we never confuse the issue that my obedience contributes anything. It could never do that. My best deed is in desperate need of God's grace. My best deed only matters at all because God looks at it done in faith and honors it. We could never earn righteousness. It's not the point. It matters how we live and then we understand that from the new birth that reality that happens to us when we're given a new heart God's spirit is put within us a transformed life really happens it's supernatural right we're born again not we're not perfect we struggle with indwelling sin but our desires are really different our affections are really different our motivations are really different and over the course of a long time we see growth and we see real change that's true And we never confuse the issue, though, into thinking that somehow our works contribute something. They're always the fruit of saving faith. They're never the root of it. Like we've said many times, the tree and its fruit is so helpful. It's the illustration Jesus uses the most. The fruit on the tree is an indication that there's life in the tree. Amen. But the fruit could never give the tree life, ever. The life in the tree produced the fruit. And that's how the Christian life works. And so we want to talk in those terms. That good works and obedience are a necessary consequence of saving faith. Amen. That good works and obedience flow out of saving faith. Amen. And we will never, ever say that obedience and good works contribute anything to your salvation. If they do, we're wasting our time. If they do. And what's good about this, friends, is that then we can honestly, lovingly uphold God's law to each other. We can hold the law up and we can assess ourselves according to it. It's perfect standard. We can encourage one another according to God's law. We can correct one another. According to God's law, we can stir one another up to love and good works as we hold the good law of God up as the guide for the believer's life. So when Paul says, do we uphold the law? He says, we do. We don't get rid of it. It's good. It just could never save you. The law in and of itself can't save. And the law in and of itself can't sanctify. Only the spirit of God by the word of God amongst the people of God can do that. I'm going to talk more about this next week in thinking about Paul's confrontation with Peter. But I'm, I'm convinced that moralism and legalism, biblically speaking, are the great enemies of the gospel, not worldliness. And we're going to think more about that. I was in a situation not long ago where I was talking to a group of high school students, and I asked them the question, what is the primary way that your friends, your peers, confuse the message of Christianity. It's the number one thing. In about 19 out of 20-ish, high school students raise their hand and they say, they think that Christianity is about stuff you do. Christianity is about keeping rules. You do this and you don't do that, and that's what it is. That's a problem. And we're going to think more about that next week. Just kind of setting the table for you and inviting you back. As we turned in to think about Paul and Peter and, and what that means for us. But I now want to move us on to the third concern of the Apostle Paul. So we thought about concern number one, the one gospel. Concern number two, the truth of the gospel in aiming to protect it. And then here's the final one. And this one's a little longer, I'm going to say it twice. Paul's third concern is that issues of conscience never become requirements for righteousness. Issues of conscience... Never become requirements for righteousness. So, this, when that happens, friends, when issues of conscience become requirements for righteousness, the gospel is obscured. The gospel is confused. So, notice that when Paul talks about circumcision, he will never condemn circumcision in and of itself as bad. He never does. He's happy to leave it as an issue of a person's conscience. You see that in 1 Corinthians. He'll talk about that. Like, sort of, as you came, remain that way. Like, don't get warped out of your frame that you were circumcised. There's nothing wrong with that. We also read in Acts chapter 16 that he had Timothy circumcised. Paul did. Why? He didn't want to offend weak people in this particular context. So his issue, I want to be clear about this. His issue over circumcision in particular is not the practice in and of itself. The issue is the requirement of circumcision for justification. The requirement of circumcision for righteousness. That's the problem. It's kind of like, hey, you can be circumcised if you want to, but just don't confuse the issue. Don't require it for righteousness. Don't require it for salvation. Don't confuse yourself into thinking that it does anything for you, spiritually speaking, before God. That's the problem. So there's a story that's kind of almost like urban legend now, probably, uh, in theological circles. so I don't know what to do with that. Can there be an urban legend in theological circles? I don't know. But we're going to say that there are. I don't know if theological circles are that cool. The the more millennials we have carrying water bottles and reading the church fathers, maybe, maybe we'll get cooler. I don't know. Alan, your beard's pretty cool. We're doing okay. There's an urban legend, a story, about a a very famous um, guy that would be in in our circles, an evangelical leader, teacher. I'm not going to say his name because I feel like that just doesn't need to be said. He has a a ministry outside of his local church, and he's going to a dinner with some individuals who are contemplating supporting that ministry. So it's kind of glad-handing, raising money. And they're at, they're at dinner, and the server comes over and asks this group of people, uh, you know, like they always do, would you like anything to drink besides water? Uh, can, can I offer you a glass of wine? Can I offer you a cocktail? Whatever. And this one woman at the table immediately, sort of indignantly, flips her wine glass over and says, of course we don't want any wine. We're Christians. To which this religious leader, this teacher, preacher guy, says, well, in that case, I'll have a scotch. And so what he's doing in that particular circumstance is this. Whether you drink alcohol or not is your business. Whether you drink alcohol or not is an issue of your own conscience. Drink, don't drink, don't get drunk. That's sin. We're clear about that. That's not okay. But drinking responsibly or not drinking at all, do what you want. But let's not make that an issue of righteousness. Let's not make that an issue of Justification, where we require that particular practice. Either maybe I drink and I'm like, if you don't, you're wrong. Or maybe I don't drink and if you do, you're wrong. It's not helpful, right? We're turning them into requirements for righteousness. Can't do that. So Paul resists these false brothers. One, in order to preserve the truth of the gospel, right? He's clear about that. But then also you see in verse 5, that's when he cleared. Actually, verse 4, excuse me. He's also resisting these false brothers in order to preserve the freedom that believers have in Christ. Now, primarily, I understand that to mean, you know, freedom in that we're justified by faith in Christ apart from law. But in part, I think what he's talking about is the freedom that we have in Christ to live. He wants to preserve that. And he doesn't seem so much concerned for his own liberty, right, as he is the liberty of the Galatian Christians, if you notice that. He's not in jeopardy with this. He's been circumcised. He was born a Jew, right? He's not concerned for himself, but he's concerned for other people. He's concerned for other believers that they would not be brought into what he considers to be slavery. So friends, this is why we don't, and by we I mean the pastors and, and the congregation, this is why we don't allow issues of conscience to become issues of dogma in this church. Issues of conscience will not Be Issues of dogma at CBC. They won't. I aim to be a very agreeable guy, but if we start having problems with that, I'm not going to be very agreeable about it. Because it just kills unity in a local church. We can have serious, spirited conversation. We can have real disagreement about what's wise and unwise. Amen. We should sharpen each other. But as soon as we start... Putting yokes around people's necks in terms of requiring this of someone for righteousness or this. Or you must kind of have your quiet times like I do, you know, at 5.30 in the morning or whatever, if you really love Christ. That's just completely ridiculous and unhealthy. So let's not do that. We want to make here at this church, we want to make the gospel clear. Amen? We want that to be absolutely obvious. How are we reconciled to a holy God, though we are sinners? And we want to defend the truth of that gospel with our lives, And certainly from the pulpit and in the ways that we live together. And I and we, as the elders, we want to protect the freedom that you have in the Lord Jesus, in for good, freedom for righteousness, freedom for joy, right? Not freedom for sin. So we want to uphold the commands, the exhortations, the warnings of God in Scripture. We absolutely want to do that, but for not a second. Would we allow any one person's conscience to dictate terms for the whole church? It's not good. So if you're in the church if you're, and you're sitting here today and you're thinking about some of the convictions that you have, right? And you're thinking, I care a lot about this thing or this thing or this thing and it matters a lot to me. I want to say to you, it's good to live based on your convictions. It's good to live based on your convictions and to worship God in good conscience. Please do that. And it's always good at the same time to be training your conscience according to scripture. You know, have biblical reasons for where you are, not just kind of like, what well, seems good to me. But then let's not turn these issues of conscience into laws that we impose upon others. I've mentioned alcohol, but that's always kind of like the lightning rod. I think there are other examples. I mean, we could talk about head coverings. 1 Corinthians 11, right? There are people in our church who would have strong opinions on that. That's fine. Have convictions and live accordingly. Dietary restrictions, right? There are people in the church that would say, you know, I kind of think there's a lot of wisdom in some of these old covenant food laws. Okay, great. But let's not, you know, judge the brother who's over there eating pork, whatever. Music. I don't think it's right to listen to secular music. Now, there's a wisdom conversation that can be had about what's good to listen to, of course. But let's not be over the top in the ways that we think about things like that. Like, Rob likes rock music, and therefore he's somehow not as righteous as the rest of us. I mean, you guys see his baby blue guitar and whether didn't have a chance, right? (laughs) So that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. And so as I'm trying to land the plane here, it's important for us, as we think about the sharp elbows of the letter to the Galatians, remember why they're thrown. And if you ever see me worked up in the pulpit or in conversation... Over faith alone and the gospel, please don't take it personally. I care, I love you, and I I care that we never compromise these truths because it's the only hope that we have. It's biblical, and so Paul's greatest concern is that that the gospel be protected, that it be preserved, and that it be heard. And I think if that's our greatest concern in this church, we'll be doing just fine. And it would please me. It would thrill. Me, if people in this community one day say of this church, man, you ever, you know those people over at Covenant Baptist Church, they're they're likable enough, but my gosh, they defend the gospel. My gosh, they're staunch defenders of the gospel. They don't play games when it comes to the gospel and what it is. Guilty as charged. That would be wonderful. It's like that church over there, they preach a magnificent and huge Christ. They, they preach sin and all its horror. And then they preach a Christ who hasn't just made salvation possible, but who has saved you. That's what they do over there. That would be great to be charged with that. They don't just sing Jesus paid it all over there at CBC. They really believe that it's finished and that he did it. When you sing a song like Jerusalem earlier like we did. And we're thinking about the Lord Jesus beginning, walking the road in Jerusalem, on the road to save us. And we think about how He stood before the wrath of God, right? Shielding sinners with His blood. And then we end by thinking about there He is on the throne, triumphant. His bride is going to be given to Him. Praise the one, not just who got us most of the way there. Praise the one who saved us. Amen? That's gospel. Christ is trustworthy. So may it be said of us that we defend the gospel, that we love each other, and that we constantly point one another to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your son. We thank you for the good news that we can be reconciled to you Completely by trusting what you have accomplished for us through him. We pray that you would, by your spirit, work in us as individuals and as a body of believers. That you would really grow us in love for each other. That our affections for each other would be increasing. That we would be increasingly mindful and aware of the joy and the sorrow that our brothers and sisters are experiencing. That we would seek all the more to come alongside each other. And we pray, God, that you also would be growing us in love for you, in gratitude towards you, in humility before you. We pray that as we meditate on the gospel, even this morning, and even as we come to the table, that our hearts would be flooded with those things, with humility and gratitude and love for you. And we pray that we would leave this place today obeying, striving to live as you have told us to live. All the while, Knowing that we're covered in the righteousness of Christ. We love you and we thank you and we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.